Ah, you made it to Friday. Welcome to it. I'm Bill Radke, and it's great to have you along as always. This is the hour at the end of the week where we figure out what happened this week and what it all means, and we do that with a panel of journalists, which today includes Publicola criminal justice reporter Paul Kiefer. Paul, welcome back. Good to see you. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And when I say see, again, I, I, I literally can see Paul and, and all my guests because we're on uh, Facebook and YouTube. You can find us by searching for KOW Public Radio. We've got Seattle City Council Insight writer Kevin Schofield. Kevin, great to have you. Thanks. Hey, Bill. It's great to be back. Crosscut reporter David Croman, welcome back. Thank you so hey, much. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm looking out my window to the east at clouds on day four. I think it's 42 now of no rain since March. Uh, I think that's the most days on record. That stretch we've gotten, I do know we've gotten like seven inches of rain since March, and that makes this the driest season in 77 years of record keeping. And yet I've also been loving the weather, I have to say, not smoky, but, uh, but will it ever rain again? How about you? How are you doing this summer? Still officially well, summer. I saw some mist this morning um, at my house, so we're getting little hints of fall. I think that's good. Mist. Um, yeah, I um, I think there's forecast. I think in western Washington will be okay, but uh, I'm really thinking about eastern Washington and where all the fires are. And I think there is rain forecast in Yakima and some of the towns over there that really desperately need it. So um, mm -hmm. fingers crossed for them. We did have a little overnight rain a few a few nights ago, and uh, but you know, yesterday everybody is saying was really the last super warm day, right? At this point, like we're we are really transitioning into fall. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a swamp creature by birth, and so this like long dry period has has essentially like robbed me of all my natural functions. So oh, I'm no. gonna kind of come to life like a fish that gets tossed into a puddle when whenever it starts raining. Oh, it'll be good to have you back. I mean, I like this Thank version you. of you, so just just wait. Okay, so yeah. uh, so let's let's catch you up, uh, listeners, on uh, the news of the week. We'll start with the pandemic. In case you don't like to spend your week immersed in COVID news, we've we've done that for you. We we're gonna first of all the big national news. President Biden made the vaccine mandatory for not only federal employees and federal contractors, but private employers with more than 100 workers have to require those workers to get either to get vaccinated or take weekly virus tests. Uh, so that total order applies to like 100 million people. In Washington, our biggest state employee union reached a tentative agreement with the governor. Uh, Seattle has not reached an agreement with its unions on vaccine mandates. Um, who wants to, to give us an update on, on how that's going? Do we think the Seattle deal is going to be pretty much the same as the state? What's hanging it up? What, what should we know about this? I can, I can jump in on this, having just chatted with you know, people from, from the Union Coalition in Seattle, which is to say that you know, some of the, a lot, in, in many ways, the purpose of the agreement that the, the Washington Federation of State Employees just reached with um, with the governor's office is, is the same as the goal is of the, the coalition of city unions here, which is to buy some time um, and also to kind of incentivize workers to get vaccinated if they aren't already. So for instance, an employee might apply for an exemption by September 12th on the state level, September 22nd on the city level, get turned down and then need to schedule a vaccination appointment. So part of the negotiations are about buying time for that. Um, someone might get an exemption 
and then their department would decide that there's no reasonable way to accommodate them if they aren't vaccinated. And so they have to choose between leaving their job or getting vaccinated. They need to buy time for that. Um, and then there are also going to be, you know, efforts on the local level as there were on the state level to incentivize people to get vaccinated on the state level that's like an additional vacation day on the city level they were asking for an additional vacation the floating vacation and it doesn't seem like that's on the table so financial incentives are now also up for consideration but that's that's sort of the gist of what what people are after yeah, you know, we're, we're in an interesting time, you know, our summer, remember back at the beginning of the summer when everybody's getting vaccinated and, you know, we could go out and things opened, you know, we're, some of, summer fun is over, right? Delta's rampant, hospitals are getting overrun, vaccine immunity is starting to fade for the people who got, got them the earliest, still have kids under 12 not vaccinated, we're new worries about long COVID, and so, you know, I look at what the president and the governor are doing, and, you know, and even at the city level, and, you know, I interpret a lot of it as they're trying to do whatever they can to avoid having to shut everything down again, because things are actually looking pretty bad at, at the moment. And, and you know, the, I, I think the, the negotiations are interesting. There are some things that the unions have asked for that I think are completely reasonable. As Paul pointed out, buying more time where necessary. Let's really kind of work this out and make sure it works for everybody. And things like, uh, you know, it, for the people who you know, are laid up for a couple of days after they get that second vaccine shot. I, I know I was for a couple of days. You know, if, if uh, the government's going to, ma- uh, going to mandate it, then they should give them a couple extra sick days for it. I'm, uh, I'm you know, less happy about them asking for more money because it feels to be quite honest, a little bit like extortion saying, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, we're not going to go get vaccinated unless you give us more money. What's the union's version of that? What's their argument for for why they ought to get more, not just accommodations that you just talked about, but more money too? Paul, do you- Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's kind of along the lines of, of you know, just giving people a reason. I mean, ultimately in, in union leadership, there are a lot of people who want their members to be vaccinated, who, you know, either want to be in workplaces where other people are vaccinated or don't want their coworkers to leave. And so the more you can incentivize people to get the vaccine, you know, who knows if money actually works, but that's, you know, part of the thinking there. Um, but, you know, I, I, it, it certainly is up for debate, whether it's extortion or just an effective way to convince people to get vaccinated. Union negotiations, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to read into you sort of, I mean, from my perspective, you sort of have to look at what the end product ends up being because both sides in union negotiations say all sorts of things, um, make things sound a lot worse than they might be, um, certain things better, you know, and it, it, it's all, it's a lot of, somebody who has um, been engaged in my own uh, workplaces union negotiations, there's a lot of uh, theater and back and forth and uh, people saying big things to kind of get to where they want to be. And so, um, I, you know, maybe asking for m- more money is, you know, you put stuff on the table so that you have stuff to take off the table. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, you, we, we hear a lot from the unions about threats of mass exoduses and um, we've seen some threats of sick outs and things like that. And, you know, again, in the same vein, it's sort of this point to take seriously. And, and what of it is just sort of, um, you know, some posturing to get the best deal for union members. And um, I don't know that we will see the answer to that until all of these agreements are hammered out. My hunch, like what Paul was saying, is the city agreement 
will look fairly similar to the state agreement, which is they're not getting raises, they're not getting more money, but they are getting some more time and a little more flexibility to um, make these shots actually doable for people. Yeah, I think that's of, probably I think it's probably likely and and I think that'd be a great outcome if that's what happens. One of the things that's still very much up in the air that I mean it has nothing to do with incentives is how the exemption requests are going to be processed. So at the moment, from what I gather, and this is kind of you know, stuff I got on background, there have been roughly a hundred employees who have requested exemptions thus far, and the paperwork went out this past weekend. Um, of those, like 80 were religious exemptions and 20 were medical exemptions. And then the city is going to have to figure out how how it approves or, or denies the requests. And so at the moment, we don't know if that's going to be done in a centralized, like anonymous form, or whether it'll be handled, you know, department by department. And then beyond that, and see, and obviously this brings up due process questions, like would certain departments be more prone to, you know, approving or denying exemption requests than others. And then once you get beyond that, once you get to the, the process of, of coming up with accommodations for people who aren't vaccinated, whether it's for religious or, or medical reason, you kind of run into the same issue. Uh, presumably the accommodations process has to be handled on a department by department level because the job of someone at Seattle City Light is so different from the job of someone at Seattle Police Department. Um, and if the department someone works in can't figure out a way to accommodate them. You know, if someone's very in a very public facing role, um, they have to come back, back to the office, et cetera, then even if they get an exemption, they still might have to leave their job if they don't get vaccinated. Um, so, you know, that that whole nexus is is in the works right now. And the, the negotiations are fairly far along, um, but th that'll kind of be a make or break point in them. I thought it was really interesting that at, at the federal level, uh, the, the mandate includes an option for weekly testing instead. And unfortunately, what's going on with Delta, and we'll see what happens with you know, this new Mu variant, is that um, you know, they've, they found very clearly that the Delta variant leads people to be contagious much earlier than previous versions of it, you know, within, in, in many cases, like 48 hours of, of contracting the virus. And, and, and you know, at least a day earlier than before in terms of when they start showing symptoms. So weekly testing, honestly, isn't going to help, right? If, 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 that's, if that's what's being, you know, put out there as an alternative to vaccination, you know, it, it's purely performative because weekly testing is not going to make a difference in terms of stopping the spread of COVID in any significant way. Yeah, that's an interesting point about the... The city, and that's going to go on all over the places. Does your fate depend on your your office's style, your boss's opinions? You know, all, all that stuff gets kind of weird. Did you see Portland exempted its police department from their mandate? I guess the state of Oregon said that the governor's order for health care workers doesn't apply to police, that uh, providing medical care isn't their job. Uh, but in Seattle, um, is that could that happen in Seattle, or is it definite that police— the police union's going to, you know, going to have to, uh, to be under vaccine mandate. I'd, I'd been talking to somebody in the mayor's office when that story came out. Um, I, I read about it in OPB. Um, we, we were talking about something unrelated, but I, you know, we were wrapping up and I brought OPB, it up. And, OPB meaning Oregon public broadcasting. Right. Right. Yeah. Want to give a public media plug here. Yeah. Um, uh, but when, you know, I brought it up and I asked her, you know, is this something that is Seattle going to consider something like that? And she kind of laughed and, and really dismissed that as a possibility. I mean, we haven't, I, I think Portland's decision was kind of based in this um, 
in, a, in some legal advice. And as far as I know, I mean, you know, they have executive sessions all the time, so we don't know what legal advice they're getting, but my sense is so far they have not received any kind of similar legal advice that it would be a good idea for them to exempt the police department. And we haven't, you know, that if you're um, a city worker and you're not vaccinated, the deadline for getting your first shot is coming up here in a couple of days because you need to be fully vaccinated, which means you get both shots and then you wait a week. So for Pfizer or Moderna, that's, you know, a month and a bit. Um, and so the fact that we haven't heard any sort of rumblings that anyone's going to be exempted from this and people need to start getting their shots here in like two days, maybe even Sunday. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't expect that we would see anything similar in Seattle. Yeah. The, legal, the, legal, the legal side of this, I'm sorry, go ahead. Paul. Oh, I was going to say just anecdotally, I, I'm told that a, a notable chunk of the people who have applied for exemptions thus far have come from SPD. There are of course people in SPD who are, you know, actively pro-vax and want people, want their colleagues to get vaccinated. But at the same time, there's a, some unknown officer put up posters and at least one precinct saying, you know, don't share your vaccination information with the city, stand together, et cetera. So there's a split of opinion within that, partly not, it shouldn't be thought of as the department that is wholly anti-vax. And, and legally, they really, you know, the, the, the people opposing sort of vaccination mandates, you know, as, as far as I can tell, really don't have a leg to stand on at all. And the, even the exemption stuff, I, I think the, you know, city and state and federal government, it, it really sort of tips in their favor. You know, there are 115 years of Supreme Court precedents that consistently support uh, the government's ability to uh, to mandate vaccines, going back to 1905 smallpox vaccine, and just Supreme Court has said it over and over and over again. So it's going to be very, very tough for any of these anti-vaccination mandate, uh, you know, groups to win in court. What about for students? Did you see Los Angeles is requiring the vaccine for all students 12 and above? They're the first city in the country to do it. Do you think that's where Seattle's going? I think it's very likely. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Just to backtrack a little bit, yeah, I'll yeah. respond to Kevin. Also, the city, the Coalition of City Unions hasn't said that the mandate is illegal. They just wanted to bargain the effects. So I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure there is anyone on the union leadership level who is claiming that the mandate is illegal or would try to challenge it in court. Well, mm -hmm. I wouldn't yeah. put it past Spog. You know, it would be the Seattle Police yeah. Officers Guild, yeah. by the way. Yeah. I'm just basically serving as the acronym translator today. So my, <laughs> main, my main duty. Okay, before we leave COVID, uh, I would love to leave COVID, but there were rumors this week that state ferry workers who oppose vaccine mandates would stage a sick out. You wouldn't be able to travel on Labor Day, you know, by ferry. Um, do you think that journalists like us, did we overhype that rumor? I mean, could there be less opposition to vaccine mandates than we think? We talked earlier about, was that just kind of a, uh, a union um, talking point, or, or, or was that legit? What I guess it didn't turn out to be legit. But what do you all make of that as journalists? Yeah, and it's the same the same question with Seattle City Light. Just, there was another story saying there was going to be a big sick out there, and and it didn't yeah. really happen. Um, you know, I go back and forth on these things. I can see merit for both arguments. I mean, if you're a ferry rider, and we'll probably get into this conversation more, and yeah, or thinking about what weekend, you you kind of want to know in advance if people are talking about not showing. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily irresponsible, but it, you know, if it is sort of a, a leverage thing that the unions are trying to deploy, then getting more press certainly does uh, help them. I mean, we didn't, we didn't cover it, um, might have if there had been an actual sick out, but, um, you know, I, I can see arguments on both sides. Yeah.
I think well, it's also yes. Go ahead, Paul. I think it's it's easy to overestimate the the proportion of people who are anti-vax in the city labor sphere or the state labor sphere because unions have to represent all their members, and so if they have you know, a, even if it's a relatively small portion of their members who don't want to get vaccinated, they still have to represent them, which then gives the impression, you know, potentially to some people outside that the unions are vaccination skeptics, but that, that isn't inherently true. Mm. Ah. Okay, good point. Since we, I, I did bring up the ferry system, you know, the, the, there have been ferry boat delays and cancellations for quite a while before the vaccine mandates. I wanted to ask you about that. I, David, you live on the Kits, Kitsap Peninsula? Yeah, I live in I live in Kingston. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough um, for, you know, the Kingston-Edmonds route has been okay, but, you know, the Bainbridge-Seattle route has been, a, and the Bremerton route have been disasters all summer, mm-hmm. um, which is the confluence of a lot of things. Um, uh, one being ships that have a lot of maintenance that has not been done, um, and it takes a really long time to bring new boats online. Um, the construction on Coleman Dock in Seattle has been really disruptive. But, you know, I think the kind of you know, both of those are sort of um, concrete things that will, in theory, eventually be resolved. The sort of more stubborn question is the staffing question. Um, and we're seeing this in all kinds of blue collar sectors right now. Um, and to a certain extent, just in all government sectors as well, which is the kind of, you know, silver wave of people who are retirement eligible. Um, you know, speaking of the city unions, I was talking to someone from the coalition of city unions. And I think three years ago, 26% of the city of Seattle workforce was retirement age eligible. And that's a pretty similar story in all, I think, public sectors, and especially in the ferry system they you know they're having a really hard time replacing people and finding new people and then you know i think when covid happened a lot of people took some steps away from work um were put on you know took some leave maybe even some people were furloughed and then um i think a lot of people just didn't come back uh part of it also aided by the fact that despite everything the stock market did really well so people's retirement portfolios suddenly look okay um and so it's a really it's a really tricky problem that you know I think some people will argue the vaccine mandates will exacerbate, but that's kind of fringe for me. I mean, it's a deep, much more deep-seated problem than whether or not the vaccine mandates is going to cause a labor shortage. It's been particularly uh, problematic for Washington State Ferries because uh, they did, in fact, have a lot of their crew retired during COVID, as, as David was talking about. And the training and certification requirements for ferry workers are, are pretty onerous. They have to go through a whole set of maritime crew certification. And so it takes months. It's not like they can just, you know, put out an ad and hire some folks and, and, and recruit this. It takes them a very, very long time to get folks through the pipeline in some way similar to law enforcement and actually even Seattle City Light line workers, right? Not, People are going to be, you know, climbing up those poles, working on those lines. Not to mention that the early phase of someone's career as a Washington State's ferry worker or Washington State ferry worker is something called the on-call system, which would require an early career deckhand to essentially drive like anywhere along the edge of the Puget Sound to be available for like to meet a boat. Um, it's not very well paid and it's arduous work and it's kind of hard to come up with a, a consistent living situation. And, and it's, I, you know, I don't know the logistics of ferries and ferry hiring but i can't really imagine there's a way to boost recruitment without reconsidering this how we deploy early career deckhands to make it a more desirable job okay growing up yeah you know i grew up on bainbridge and um 
you, there was no, you would not see late fairies. And if you did, it was five to 10 minutes at most. In fact, at one point when I was young, they were, they were running three ferries between Seattle and Bainbridge. So you had this ferries every 20 minutes. Uh, this summer, it was consistently 35, 45 minutes late, these boats. I mean, they were, they were halfway through the day just canceling a route so that they would just become sort of on time again, but only because they were so late, they were like, had been bumped to the next route. And that is just, you know, I grew up here, I've been a ferry person my entire life, and that has never, ever been the case. It's, it's really um, uniquely bad right now. Well, yeah. so in my experience, living part-time in the San Juans for the last 20 years is that, uh, you know, until they put in the reservation system a couple of years ago, every summer, the ferries are running late every single day. And it was, and it would get exacerbated when a boat broke down. And when they're running all day, you know, the boats do in fact break down. And some of the issues that David was talking about, about they're just behind and building new boats has exacerbated the problem. But it really, in a lot of ways, went away a couple of years ago, but it, it came back in spades this summer with, with the crewing shortages where they, like down here, have been canceling things. And where it's an inconvenience, a major inconvenience, you know, in the South Sound, for the San Juan Islands, that's how people get to medical appointments in in uh, in Bellingham and Anacortes and places like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it, it in some cases a life or death situation for them if if they can't do that. And you you know, there's no option to drive the long way around the peninsula if mm-hmm. you you know can't get on that boat to make your your doctor appointment in Bellingham from, from you know Orcas Island. That that's true in Vashon too. I mean, like you know, it's a. That's, I think the average age in Vashon is over the age of fifty-five. It's you know, rural areas are, are uniquely accident prone, and there's no hospital. Um, you know, so you know, right. if you're on Vashon and the and the ferry's delayed, you can get to Tacoma or Seattle, but you're you yeah. know, you might be stuck and dying in an ambulance. So yeah, yeah. I I uh, lived in, on Vashon in high school, and I used to actually go by the. I had the little book, the little paper fold up schedules of whether I was going to go to the Tahlequah Ferry in the South End or the Fauntleroy Ferry in the North End. And you're, you're just listening to you is making me realize I haven't checked a ferry schedule. I don't know when because you just you don't know how long the line is going to be. You don't know what the delay is going to be. Just get there as soon as you can and, and, and hang out. So that's a that's like feels like a relic of my youth when I when I used a ferry schedule. Anyway, we got to move on. Speaking of schedules, as we continue with the week in review, uh, Bill Radke here, and we've got Paul Kiefer with Public Cola, Kevin Schofield with Seattle City Council Insight, David Croman with Crosscut, and you too, if you'll uh, hang on, we'll be right back. This is Bill Radke bringing you the Week in Review with Kevin Schofield, David Croman, and Paul Kiefer. And this week, Seattle's mayor said the city council overstepped some boundaries when they passed a bill to limit police tactics. The sponsors of the bill say it's meant to, this new bill is meant to restrict officers' use of crowd control weapons, blast balls, tear gas, pepper spray. But Mayor Jenny Durkin is so down on this bill that she returned it to the council unsigned. So it'll take effect, but Durkin says it's not going to actually do anything. It's important for the public to understand what the clear rules are. It's important for officers to understand what the clear rules are. And council passed something claiming it made changes when they know it doesn't make a single change. Who can explain this? What does Mayor Durkin mean that a bill is passed and it won't do anything? It won't make any change? Oh, boy. So let's see. Uh, You know, in the letter that she sent back when, when she returned it unsigned, 
you know, she, she listed a bunch of complaints. It was a, a pretty good laundry list. Some of the things, you know, are things you've heard before. Some, you know, a couple of new things in there. She said that, you know, uh, that I, I think she, largely she was saying that Judge Robart, who oversees the 2012 consent decree against the police department, is likely to throw this out. And the Department of Justice and the court-appointed police monitor also is likely to have big problems with this. So, so it, it may not go anywhere. But, you know, she said things like, you know, the city charter says that management of SPD and, and its policies, you know, setting policies is is the responsibility of the chief of police and not the city council to go do that. Okay. Uh, that it's potentially a violation of the separation of powers because this, you know, less lethal uh, weapons ban ordinance, you know, says that it doesn't go into effect until the judge Robart approves it, right? But this actually came up in... Uh, in, in the court cases around Tim Iman's initiative 976 that said that, you know, some parts of, you know, defeasing bonds only took effect if, you know, the, uh, the you know, local government chose to, you know, go ahead and, and get rid of certain bonds. And they said, you know, the legislative branch can't delegate its legislative responsibility to another branch of government. Right. Okay. Uh, it said, you know, this violates the processes that were laid out in the consent decree for how SPD's policies were supposed to get changed, and it forces SPD to propose and defend to, to the, you know, the judge policies that it doesn't like and doesn't, you know, and doesn't agree with. But and why would the city council pass something that, if if the mayor's right that it doesn't do anything, why would the city council pass it? I can answer this a little bit. So the original bill, which you know came up last summer, was so restrictive that um, the DOJ did indeed challenge it, and uh, it, it was a bill that that placed stronger restrictions, I should say, on on the use of less lethal weapons or quote unquote crowd control weapons by SPD in crowd control context. And again, that's tear and gas, blast balls, pepper spray, less pepper lethal spray, weapons, is yeah, the rubber phrase. bullets, that kind uh, of thing. Yeah. Right. So. It, that uh, Judge Robert placed an injunction on the enact, on the the implementation of that bill, um, and actually, it's not really it, it's complicated because it's not actually that the, that the court can block the law itself, but that the court can block the law or the policies that SPD proposes that align with the the terms of the bill. So, in any case, the council went back and revised this original bill in accordance with the concerns of the DOJ and the court appointed monitor. And so um, council member Herbold, who's the chair of the public safety committee met with uh, the DOJ, met with the court appointed monitor, whose name is Dr. Oftaly, uh, to talk, you know, get in, informal guidance about how to tweak the bill so that it wouldn't raise the same alarms at the DOJ if it got passed in the future. So for instance, they gave, officers some more leeway to use pepper spray in a more targeted way against people who are breaking law as opposed to, you know, as a, a tool to move crowds or, you know, a tool to use indiscriminately against crowds. And so the council got sign off from the city attorney's office. And in, in their view, they, you know, these informal meetings with the DOJ and the, the monitor were enough, you know, that was all enough to, to kind of iron out the problems with the original bill so that it would stand up um, when SPD had to bring policies before the court um, that adhered to the new bill. So in any case, there, you know, there's a disagreement about whether, between the, the mayor and the council, about whether those sessions with the DOJ and 
the monitoring team were substantial, whether they, the edits made fully addressed the DOJ's concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and the mayor is presuming or kind of assuming that the most likely scenario is that they didn't address the DOJ's concerns. And what the council is saying is, you know, it's not illegal because the, you know, we got the city attorney sign up on this. And for what we know, you know, as far as we know, we address the DOJ's concerns. The DOJ can't comment on the legislation itself. So we're going to have to wait until SPD wraps up, you know, these draft policies. They had okay. 60 days from the time the thing was passed. So it's, okay, it's so actually it's in the air. For 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 someone listening to us who's not is so in the weeds of which you know that's the story right it's that those yeah. are the details so we understand but David do you have anything to add for someone listening who who wants to know what you know it, how are police going to treat demonstrators differently for when all this is done or or um, you know political fallout this was a unanimous you know all the city councilors who are running for re-election including Lorena Gonzalez running for mayor they voted. I believe, right? It was unanimous, so they all voted for this yeah. bill. What what else should we know, David? My my whole context for this is uh, that what we're kind of seeing uh, is the city council of today sort of legislating against the city council of 2010 or like city hall of 2010, mm. which is our our notion of what police reform looked like when we invited a federal judge to come in and oversee changing our police department looked a lot different than it does today. And in some ways, what that judge is tasked with doing is is a fairly narrow task, um, which is, you know, be be constitutional, don't be an unconstitutional police force. But now the police, the, you know, city hall and stuff is talking about sort of broader changes and a little more holistic, but um, we still have this sort of old model of what police reform looks like hanging around. And those two things have a kind of awkward relationship with each other. Um, and that's what we're seeing, I think, sort of wrapped up in this, this blast ball, less lethal weapon debate is like, what, what constitutes police reform? Is it the sort of changes that people, you know, demanded and thought were necessary in 2010, a very top down approach? a judge sort of saying, this is what police reform needs to be. And if you don't do it, I'm gonna get really angry. Or is police reform, um, which is, I would argue kind of what we're more seeing of 2020 and 21, something that happens from, you know, the streets and protests and pressure on city hall to make fairly dramatic changes. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I think those two things have only just now kind of started to come in conflict with each other. And it's gonna be interesting to see how they resolve that conflict. I yeah. think David's spot on, and and you know there's kind of another layer too of that, which is you know in 2012, in, when the consent decree was signed, uh, and by the way it was negotiated by Jenny Durkin back when she was the the U.S. Attorney for Western Washington, mm -hmm. uh, there were there were certain principles about how one reforms law enforcement, right? What kind of data you need to collect, you know the kinds of actions that you that you would typically force law enforcement to go through to reform their behavior and you know and and we seem to be on a path where for almost all of the components of that spd had been making very solid progress and then what we discovered last summer was that there were really still very big gaps and the things that we've been asking spd to do in a lot of ways 
didn't really fix the problems. The, the biggest problem being biased policing against minorities in, in, in the city. And that wasn't a total surprise because, you know, one of the areas that had been studied was around what is there continued sort of discriminatory behavior in who the police stops and who gets ticketed and things like that. And the data showed very clearly that even, you know, 2018, 2019, last year, those discriminatory practices were continuing and they studied why, and they came back and said, actually, we don't have a really good idea as to why, but they are still really continuing on. So, you know, in those aspects, the consent decree leave, it, well, it achieved many, many things. And, you know, overall, for example, the uh, uh, use of force by SPD has reduced dramatically. What use of force remained is still highly biased, right? So there were, there were important problems that consent decree set out to solve that did not get solved, right? And I think that's a part of what we're reckoning with now. It's the, this consent decree we have right now isn't going to get us across the finish line. And so what do we have to change to get where we really need to go? Okay, I've got. I've, oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, we're we're. Uh, I'm I'm keeping us on a Washington State Ferry esque schedule as it is. <laughs> so, um, a couple other city pieces of city news. Some University of Washington researchers said this week that Seattle's tax on sugary beverages might not be getting us to drink less of it. We've we've had this tax for three years, a buck seventy five an ounce on soda, sports drinks, energy drinks, teas, coffees, juices. It was supposed to reduce consumption and also pay for healthy eating education. And when the pandemic hit, the city used the soda tax money to give emergency supermarket vouchers to families. Uh, among higher income residents, though, sugary beverage consumption actually increased since it went into effect. But, but uh, Kevin, didn't consumption go down when at first, but now that's, 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 that's done? Is that the deal? Yeah, so... Uh, we should just preface by saying these kinds of evaluations of like what's happening with with consumption are really just notoriously difficult to do well because you basically have to prove a counterfactual you have to figure out like what would have happened in seattle if the soda tax hadn't been passed right right and then compare that with what really did happen mm. and since you know we can't go back in time and 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 see what happened in an alternate universe they they have to try to figure out well what what's a good comp what's a comparable city or set of cities to look at and at this point the, the the most obvious comparable cities, ones like San Francisco, that are, you know, match up sort of basic demographics, educational levels, sort of political leanings, all those things, most of them actually have soda taxes too. So we can't use them as a, as a counterfactual case. So they ended up sort of in this latest study putting together a weird kind of agglomeration of, of other cities, starting with Minneapolis, which is a, a common point of reference, but some other smaller cities too, to try to do comparison. The last study they did before this one that you mentioned found like in 2018, it looked like consumption had gone down a lot here, but it went down the same amount in the comparable cities. So it's like, well, okay. that doesn't mean the soda tax made any difference. And this year, what they're saying, looking at 2019 numbers is, there's a little bit of a decrease for low-income residents in Seattle, a little bit of an increase for higher-income residents in Seattle, but the comparison data is just weird. In fact, looking at it, it looks like, you know, consumption of sugary beverages went up 15 points between 2007 and 2019. You look at that and go, okay, that, that doesn't make any sense. But so the bigger picture here is there's still been no evidence at all that the soda tax has actually reduced consumption here. 
So, I mean, there's, there were two parts of the promise that they made when they passed this and, and they had to make a promise because the problem with this tax is it's highly, highly regressive, right? It's well-known, well-documented. Nobody sort of really seriously argues otherwise that, that soda and other sugar beverages are marketed to and consumed disproportionately by low-income communities, right? So if you tax them, then the impact of that tax is higher on low-income communities than it is on higher-income communities. And that makes it regressive. There's no argument that it's regressive. And they knew that at the time they passed the tax. So the deal they made was to say, okay, we're going to pass this tax and, and we're going to ensure that the revenues that are collected from this are invested back into low-income communities on health programs, on you know, early intervention, early you know, childhood intervention programs to try to make sure that we're creating a healthier environment for kids uh, out of this. And that second part, the investing the money, you know, with the exception of an emergency last year with, with COVID has largely happened. But if the first part, the consumption of you know, sugar beverages going down didn't happen, you know, now all we're left with is a tax on poor people to pay for programs for poor people. Okay, good, good summary. So, uh, Paul or David, does anyone think that that this news that the money's coming in and it's getting spent, but it's not reducing consumption, does that does that mean the city's going to reconsider the tax, pull the tax, no effect at all? What what's the upshot? What's on my mind? Oh, go ahead, David. Sorry. I mean, this is I I just I think this is. Uh, the calculation that the city city hall makes a lot, um, which is, it is a progressive city council, a progressive mayor, um, in a state with a highly regressive tax system, and so this is kind of uh, another. I mean, they, they do this calculation and these battles all the time with sales tax and property tax. We, you know, just are funding a community college and pre K with a property tax and maybe a property tax is not quite as regressive as sales or um, soda tax, but it is kind of mostly considered a pretty regressive tax. And so uh, the city city hall is just always making these calculations of like, is the, is the regressive nature of this tax we want to do worth it to do sort of the progressive things we want to do? Um, I think if, I think, well, I know when you ask any of them, they kind of, nobody in city hall likes it. They all wish they could do an income tax um, or a tax on rich people in Seattle, but they can't, um, at least not yet, uh, depending on what happens with capital gains to state, you know, so what they're left with are, uh, if they want more money to do the things they want to do, they mostly have to turn to regressive taxes. And um, the city council, when they passed the soda tax calculated, they thought it was worth it, that these programs were going to be effective and helpful enough that it was worth putting some tax on soda. And um, I have yet to see well, maybe in, I don't think since 2009 or 2010 has the city council voted to repeal a tax that it has put on place. So, um, you know, I think it's here for now. Okay. Paul, anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I guess this is more of a question, but I'm curious to what, on like on what level this could parallel other regressive taxes that are intended to change behavior. So for instance, if we put, you know, if we began to toll people for driving through downtown, um, and put the revenue from that into expansions of bus rapid transit, something along those lines. Um, are the, is it changed, is it more difficult to change or to, I guess, incentivize people not to drink sh- sugary beverages than it is to incentivize people to ride public transit, you know, given 
what kind of spending options you have for the revenue you get from those, those taxes that you use as disincentives or incentives. So it might be easier to convince people to ride bus rapid transit because they see the buses, you know, zipping by car gridlock um, than it is to convince people to stop drinking sugary beverages because there's nothing quite as dramatic to provide a contrast. But I'm not sure if that actually bears, you know, bears out in reality. Yeah. And, you know, Seattle's a really interesting place for this. So when, when they told 520, when they put the tolls back in 520, there was a short-term drop in traffic across the bridge. But over the course of the next couple of years, it basically bounced back to what it was before that, right? So, and, and this is the funny thing about soda taxes, because they are in places in a bunch of, of, of cities and, uh, now. And what the studies on them have shown is that they actually have an impact in some cities, and they don't in others. And the researchers have no idea what the difference is. And they have no predictive ability to say it's going to work here or not here. So Berkeley, it seems to be having an effect. Right next door in Oakland, no effect. Right. And they just they just they just don't know why you, a soda tax works in some places and doesn't work in others. OK, that's the latest from uh, UW researchers as they keep uh, tracking the effect or possibly the unknowable non-effect of this uh, city soda tax. OK, we've got to take a short break and we're going to come right back. We're going to uh, uh, mark a terrible anniversary and also find a reason to smile when we return. This is Bill Radke. As I'm talking now on Friday with CrossCut's David Croman, Seattle Insights Kevin Schofield, and Public Cola's Paul Kiefer, it is the day before the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. City of Seattle's planning a small ceremony to honor the victims. Port of Seattle firefighters made a memorial at SeaTac Airport. Uh, How are you thinking about this uh, 20-year anniversary? Paul, I'd like to start with you. I was three years old, just shy of four years old when the towers fell. Um, so I have a much, I have no memory of that day. I don't really know what life was like before it. Um, I have a very clear memory of things like the Newtown shooting or the Orlando shooting or Trayvon Martin shooting, that sort of thing. Um, my, I mean, this is sort of a, a weird reflection on it, but you know, I converted to Islam when I was 14. So like more than a decade after the, the towers fell. And I don't know if this is something that a lot of other sort of post 9-11 Muslim converts share, um, but I have a kind of a constant insecurity about whether someone will question why I made that decision, you know, post 9-11. And I, I don't really owe anyone an explanation and there's no direct connection between the two events, but it's an anxiety I have. And I also have this kind of, I don't think it's a unique experience, but, you know, part of my coming of age when I, you know, be- turned, you know, when I became an adult was having people ask me if I was an informant in mosques because the Patriot Act has, you know, left a really deep imprint on our community. And not that there weren't informants in mosques in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s when, when the FBI was going after the Nation of Islam, but, you know, it, it it feels like it's, you know, especially converts are, are, are particularly suspect in the, in the post-Patriot Act era because we were used very often to spy on people. Um, so, you know, it's colored my life in that sense. Um, but I, you know, again, I don't have it. I don't really know what it felt like to, to experience the change in and of itself in that, in that day or in that week. And how has the experience changed in those years since your conversion to now 20 years out from 9-11? 
a part of growing up like you know I, I was I was in the strange position of converting when I was you know basically still in puberty so you know it, it um part of growing up and having to kind of come to terms with the political reality of the decision I made which you know at the time was mostly about finding community but you know as, as I got older I really had to grapple with what it means politically um is that you know, I, you fall into this, I've had to fall into this kind of culture war. Um, it's not really a war, that's too dramatic of a, a way to phrase it, but there is sort of an internal cultural battle about, you know, how much do, you know, how much should we embrace sort of patriotism and the notion of, of building a distinctly American Muslim cultural identity to set us apart from other people versus, you know, how much should we sort of be the bridge between Muslims elsewhere in the world who get otherized and, and Muslims here, et cetera. And being a convert, naturally, I'm like seen as, I, I feel like I'm supposed to be some sort of conduit for, you know, one or both of those sides. And um, I'm, it, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a far more anxiety inducing experience than I anticipated when I was 14. David, you were saying that you, for you, you we can't separate uh, a 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks from the withdrawal, chaotic withdrawal of uh, from Afghanistan. Right, because um, you know, there's on the one hand, there's the kind of memorial side of the 20th anniversary, which is reflecting on this singular event um, of 9/11, but there's the much more active. Uh, you know, marking of the 20th year, 20th anniversary, which is that, um, you know, Afghanistan is, uh, it is what it is. It's been a disaster. Iraq has been a disaster. I mean, it's 20 years on um, the people who are really living with the consequences of 9-11 don't live in the United States. They live in Afghanistan and they live in Iraq. Um, and that I think is a much more powerful marker of the last 20 years than the ceremonies were, will be. Ceremonies, not saying they're not necessary. I mean, of course I wanna, you know, remember that specific day, but also wanna keep in our in our minds and our hearts, the people who live in the, the places that the United States um, came into and, and then left um, both uh, in chaos. Kevin, you were telling me uh, you're you're also thinking about w what's happening to democracy. Oh yeah, and I, I have so many feelings about about nine eleven. You know, I was up early that morning. I you know was watching breaking news after the first plane had hit. You know, the first twin tower and there was smoke coming out, and you know the the anchors had no idea. Like there was still much confusion about what had actually happened, and then watching live as the second plane hit and realizing just like the full realization of what was actually going on. And then having to go wake up my kids to get ready for school and tell them what was going on that day. Um, that That's gonna live with me for the rest of my life. Um, but just thinking back about sort of the context of what was going, what the United States and the world was going through at the time, you know, in 2001, the United States was really the only recognized global superpower. Right. Russia was still kind of in disarray after the breakup of the Soviet Union. China was starting to open up, but was really sort of not in, in full sort of superpower mode at that point. Um, and, and we were kind of seen as as the still seen as the beacon for spreading democracy throughout the world. And 
in many ways, because we were the global superpower, we kind of seen as, as invincible, right? As kind of untouchable. And 2001 kind of showed that America was not in fact invincible, right? That you could get us and you could hurt us uh, in, in ways that really you know, resonated. Um, and then our reaction to that in a lot of ways undermined the message that we were the, the, you know, the beacon of democracy around the world because our worst instincts came out in a lot of ways, right? We, you know, invaded Afghanistan quickly. We, uh, you know, came up with some reasons to invade Iraq. And it's not like there weren't people in the United States at the time who were saying, hey, we're going to invade Afghanistan. That has never worked out for anyone to go invade Afghanistan. Why would we do that? And we're going to invade Iraq. What does Iraq have to do with this, with what happened in 9-11 at all? And those people were shouted down. And we went to did those things anyway and demonstrated to the world that, that maybe we weren't necessarily sort of the beacon of freedom that we thought we were. And then, you know, so 20 years later, we look back and say, is democracy advancing or retreating around the world? And there's a good argument to be made that it's in retreat, right? Look at what's going on in Russia, China, Middle Eastern countries, now including Afghanistan, and, and even here at home where we're busy passing voter restrictions and civil liberties restrictions. And uh, you know, I think 9-11 hurt our image at the time and hurt our standing in the world and probably hurt the cause of democracy. And we have yet to figure out sort of how, what our new role in the world is going to be uh, where this sort of American exceptionalism is a shattered myth and we can you know, go back to being a force for good. I know it's kind of Debbie Downer to, to talk about that way, but I, I think we still have a lot of reckoning to do. Well, speaking of, of Debbie Downer, um, how do you, we're at the end of our show, I ask the same question at the end of the show every week, given that backdrop of the kind of world we're living in, did you smile this week? Did you have, is there a reason to smile that you want to pass on to a listener as we say goodbye? Oh, well, for me, it's the crack and ice plaques is, is, is open up today, right? That's right. Up, up in Northgate. and Climate you know, Pledge Arena. Uh, well, yeah, the, but the, the ice bucks, the, the practice facility that's going to be open to the public for ice skating, all that opens up today. I think that's, I'm not sure about the name. Oh, in Northgate. Yeah, up in Northgate. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure, I'm not sure about the name Kraken Ice Plaques because like it's either an awesome dessert or like maybe like the thing that's finally going to take down humanity. It's kind of hard, <laughs> to, but, yes. but I'm, I'm excited to go actually, I haven't been ice skating in a long time. Looking forward to going and doing that. Oh, that's awesome. Anything else you want to smile at before we go? As long as we're doing sports, I'll say uh, it has not. <laughs> it has been a long time since I feel like the Mariners could had, had a mm. shot at the playoffs, and so um, feeling, you know, e even if they don't make it, which I feel like odds are against that they will, mm -hmm. it's been uh, a competitive. It's you know September, and we're still talking about them, and that that is a win. Yes, that is a win. <laughs> um not sports related at all but i walk or i get around mostly on foot and i have been running into this orange cat named george michael who's really friendly uh, uh -huh. pretty often so uh if one of the the listeners today um is the owner of a cat named george michael who's extremely friendly and has a bizarre meow um thank you i really <laughs> appreciate what george michael brings into my life 
Wham. Thank you for that, Paul. That's Paul Kiefer, criminal justice reporter at Publicola with CrossCut reporter David Croman and Seattle City Council Insight writer and co-host of the Seattle News Views and Brews podcast, Kevin Schofield. And uh, I love that you come together with us on, on Fridays. Thank you so much for being Week in Review today. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Our show is produced by Alec Cowan and Sarah Leibovitz. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thank you for listening. Let's do it again next Friday. I'm Bill Radke.